Good morning. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Happy Easter. Some of you might be saying, not very happy, Jono. I intended to be elsewhere and here I am stuck at home. Well, God knew all about it. Even if it's not feeling at this moment like a happy Easter, I at least hope it's a joyful Easter for you and your family that you're able to enjoy some chocolate. Doesn't that taste a little bit better at this time of year? I think it does. We can really be here in this moment together. God knew in advance we were going to be here, we were, that this Easter 2020 was going to look like this, even if it's been a surprise for us. We can trust him in this season through every high, through every low. He is with us. He is with us. God is a restoration specialist. He's worthy of our trust. This Easter and Easter is all about the fact that when things look dark, when things look dead and buried, even God can step in and make all things new. I hope and trust that's your experience. If you are following along in the U version today, you can look under the app there and find events, Access Church North Lakes, and you'll find the sermon notes for what we're following through today. Also, I want to mention that. In our Access social media pages, we have daily devotionals happening at the present time. We're working really, really hard to keep you connected in this season where we can't physically meet together. We are finding alternate means such as this to still connect as a church family. We're in a new series, I Am, statements made by Jesus through the book of John. We began on Good Friday with I Am the Door. Today we look at another statement of Jesus, I Am the Resurrection and the Life. Someone has said that life has three key questions that need answering. Where do we come from? What are we here for? Where are we going? Where do we come from? That's a question of origin. Who thought this life up. Where do we come from? How did I arrive here on the planet? What am I here for? That's a question of purpose. Is there a point to life? Does my existence have a reason behind it? What am I here for? Who instigated all this and why? What am I here for? Then the third question is a question of destiny. Destiny. Where am I going? Where am I going? Is this present life all there is? Or is there more to look forward to? Where is my life heading? Do I just die and go six foot under? Or is there more to life than this current moment? So because I'm Jono and I'm your friend, I'm boiling those three questions down to one this Easter Sunday, 2020. Who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? Because my conviction is that all of those big life questions are reconciled in the person of Jesus. He, his importance really matters that much. May I therefore suggest this Easter, if you're unsure about who Jesus is, there's nothing more urgent than to work that question through and work out who Jesus Christ is. Now, there's various ways of doing that, of course. If you think about myself as an example, if you want to know about me, if you want to get to know me, there's several ways of doing that. You could go to my friends, people that know me really well, and they would be able to describe to you my personality. They would be able to uh, put you in the picture about what I'm really like. If you went to my family, they would give you an even further look into my makeup and my identity. But you could go even further than that. 
you could go straight to the source. You could come and talk to me personally. And throughout this series in the book of John, that's essentially what we're doing. We're bypassing all the other options and we're going straight to the source himself. So this big question that I'm putting on the table before us this Easter Sunday, who is Jesus Christ? We're going to him directly to hear it from his own mouth through these I am statements that he's given us through the book of John. Today's statement, I am the resurrection and the life. It's in John 11. I am the resurrection and the life. The book of John, the fourth book in our New Testament, verse 25, is where Jesus makes this statement. I am the resurrection. It's a bizarre statement and may I add, becomes even more bizarre when we think about the context from which that statement arises from. The claim comes out of a confusing story, which we'll now consider for the understanding of the landscape. It's necessary that our reading this morning is a little longer than normal, but I say there's no better way of spending time together than reading the Holy Scriptures. So in that spirit, let's read. John 11, and I'm reading from verse 1, where we come across this second statement of Jesus that we're considering this Easter weekend, I am the resurrection and the life. John 11, reading from verse 1, A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was sick. The two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. Now that's an understatement. He hasn't just got a head cold. He's on his deathbed. He's really, really, really crook. Verse 4, when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. Now it happened for the glory of God. So that the Son of God will receive glory from this. Twice mentioned in that scripture, glory. It's about God's glory. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary and Lazarus, he stayed where he was the next two days. I want you to notice right there, one of the most confusing verses in the entire Bible, John 11:6. We'll return to it in a moment, but for now, just note the gravity of what was said. We really, really, really need you, Jesus. And he's like, ah, I'll stay here. Confusing. Verse 7, finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But the disciples objected. Rabbi, they said, only a few days ago, the people in Judea were trying to stone you. Are you going to go there again? Jesus replied, there are 12 hours of daylight every day. During the day, people can walk safely. They can see because they have the light of the world. But at night, there is danger of stumbling because they have no light. Then he said, verse 11, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but now I'll go and wake him up. The disciples said, Lord, if he is sleeping, he'll soon get better. Verse 13, they thought Jesus meant Lazarus was simply sleeping, but Jesus meant Lazarus had died. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there, for now you'll really believe. Come. Let's go see him. Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too and die with Jesus. 
Now, Thomas often gets a bad rap for his scepticism. He gets called Doubting Thomas by many. Here we can't fold his loyalty, though. He's fully anticipating a death and yet doesn't flinch at the idea, ready to risk it all for Jesus. Let's read on in verse 17. Jesus arrived at Bethany. He was told that Lazarus had already been in the grave for four days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem. Many of the people had come to console Mary and Martha in their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, and notice the pain under these words. If only you had been here. If only. If only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everybody else rises on the last day. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. We're going to skip down to verse 34, where Jesus comes to the grave of Lazarus and says this, Where have you put him? And they told him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, See how much he loved him. But some said, This man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb, a cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Roll a stone aside, Jesus told them, but Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he has been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled the stone aside. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I say it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here so that they will believe you sent me. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in headcloth. Jesus told him, unwrap him and let him go. God, we're asking this Easter Sunday that we will somewhat comprehend a little more what it means that you are the resurrection and the life. In Jesus' name. Amen. Hopefully we'll get around to some good news. But first, sorry, I've got three pieces of bad news that we come across in this text. First, notice Jesus' arrival didn't eradicate sickness. Jesus' arrival on earth didn't eradicate sickness. Now, I know that isn't positive news. It's actually terrible news. I don't like it. There's been a growing theology in the last 20 years or more, and I, for one, wish it was right. But it goes along these lines. If I just have enough faith, I'll never have to face hardship. I'll never have to deal with sickness or disease or pain. It's all gone in Jesus' name. Well, to make that statement, however, is to live in denial. There's ample biblical evidence in the New Testament, in the life of Jesus himself, and in church history where we learn that many of the 12 early followers of Jesus ended their life as martyrs. 
Now, some would say all of them did. That could be an exaggeration, but certainly many of them did. Their life ended as martyrs. So it doesn't quite line up with this theology that's become popular. So where do we get the idea that life was a bed of roses? We didn't get it from the New Testament. An easy life wasn't promised by Jesus. Actually, quite the opposite. Later in the book of John, he'll say this. In the world, you'll have tribulation. Literally means anguish. In the world, you'll have hardship. In the world, you'll have trouble. This is a promise from Jesus. It's not one that usually makes our bookmarks. It's not one that we put as a bumper sticker on our car. But nonetheless, it is a promise from Jesus. In this present world, you'll have tribulation. So where do we get this idea that we would never suffer, that we would never face challenge? Well, we got it from what has been commonly called the prosperity gospel. It's a theological viewpoint where God wants us healthy, wealthy and wise. Admittedly, that worldview's got a little shaky at a time in history like right now, but we should have never brought into it. We should have never swallowed that. Let me tell you why. Because in the world, you'll have tribulation. Now, how does it get traction then? How does a theology like that gain momentum? Well, it gains momentum because it's close to the truth. You know, if I go to the bank tomorrow, I can't go tomorrow, it's a public holiday. But if I go to the bank next time it's open and present this as a $50 note, an A4 piece of paper, I'm not going to get anywhere. It doesn't work because it has a counterfeit Note that is not even close to, to looking like a $50. Note. I'm not going to be able to make a deposit and, and, and have anyone believe or make a transaction at a local store thinking that is the real thing. So for any satanic counterfeit, which the prosperity gospel is, for anything to get momentum, it has to be close to the truth. It has to contain elements of the truth. And the prosperity gospel does. It contains elements of truth. Does God want to bless his children? Absolutely. It's true. And that's why it has gained traction, momentum and progress. The problem is it doesn't hold theological views in tension that it should. That in the world, you'll have tribulation. This is also a promise from God. So we need to be careful of what's called an over-realized eschatology where we say heaven is here now. Yes, in the arrival of Jesus, he did say the kingdom of God is here when he, when he walked this planet. And yet we live in an age which, which is rightly called now and not yet. So, so Jesus has arrived and we, there's, a, there's a taste of heaven here and now with us right now because the Holy Spirit comes to live within the life of a believer. And yet it's not yet. It's not yet fulfilled. It's not yet completed. Jesus will come back and do that one day. And we long with all of creation for that day. But it's not yet. Jesus' presence does not eradicate all sickness. Well, hang on though. Don't followers of Jesus get special treatment? 
We asked that question on Good Friday. Let's follow up on those thoughts. The second piece of bad news from John 11 is the person suffering in this case was very dear to Jesus. They were like that. They were close friends. They had a personal relationship. In fact, I think we could make a solid argument to say there was no family on earth closer to Jesus than Mary, Martha and Lazarus. They were intimate. They knew each other well. Jesus was often in their home. This makes this scenario in John 11 even more confusing, I would suggest, because not only does Jesus not eradicate sickness, the person suffering in this case was very, very, very close to Jesus. So, John, are you saying that of the two plus billion followers of Jesus in the world today, we don't get special treatment, we don't get a free ride? That's a tough pill to swallow. But even tougher when you put it in the context of the people who are closest to Jesus don't get special treatment. I don't know who you think of when you think of saint. Some would say Mother Teresa. Some people's minds might go to Billy Graham. Some people might say Graham Carnell, especially after his promotion last week. Sorry, Graham, I've got to stop doing that. John 11 informs us that nobody is exempt from difficulties. If this family had to deal with sickness, a family that's in Jesus' personal friendship circle, then we can't claim exemption from it right now. John 11.5, although Jesus loved Mary Martha and Lazarus. He loved them. Here's our third piece of bad news. He didn't rush to help. He stays where he is. It's, it's, a, it's a fascinating observation of this scripture. Instead of rushing back to Bethany in response to this emergency call for help, Jesus stays right where he is. There's a major, major disconnect between their request and his response. A major disconnect. They're like, the sisters are like, dial triple O, get Jesus on the line. We need him and we need him now. And he's like, nah, I'll get there eventually. I wonder if you've ever been away from your mobile phone for a period of time and you come back to it, it was in the car or wherever it might be, and you've had like five missed calls from the same person in quick succession, you kind of get the impression like, emergency, I better get back to them straight away, right? If Jesus had a mobile phone, it would have been five missed calls. It would have been like 500 missed calls. And that's just from one of the sisters here. He had two to contend with. I'm sure this call goes out from them in an urgent manner. And yet Jesus doesn't respond, so it seems. Certainly not on their timetable. I wonder if you've ever had a problem with God's timing. <laughs> I have fairly often. 
Let me tell you about two recent ones. When I arrived at this church, January 2020, I was only here a few weeks and then one of the elders passed away. I wondered why I only got to know him long enough to grow to love him and then he was gone. Confusing. Another example, even more recent to that, is my father passed away in the last fortnight. And I've only been in the state 10 weeks. And I get a call to say my father has suddenly deteriorated. He's not expected to last the day. And I watch my father pass away over a screen. The rest of my family were there, all my siblings were there. I would have been there if I could have been. 10 weeks, 10 weeks after arriving in a new state. Why then, Lord? Why not why I was still back there and I could have said in that? I don't understand God's timing. But neither am I looking for reasons to believe. I don't follow God because he provides answers to all of my questions or he provides immediate responses on my timetable. No, no, no. He meets me in all those moments of confusion. He, he, he meets me in my suffering and he's there in those very darkest of times. And he brings the hope of resurrection. And that's where John 11 lands. Jesus does bring light into this dark, dark, dark situation. We've pointed out all the bad news about this chapter. Now the good news. There's hope on the other side of darkness. There is. This is what Easter Sunday is all about. On the other side of the struggle, we find Christ there bringing hope, bringing new life, speaking words of life. That's the message of John 11 today. It takes a death to have a resurrection. It takes a death to have a resurrection. It takes a battle to appreciate the breakthrough. It takes a difficulty to recognise the blessing. And it takes a death in order to have a resurrection. Sometimes, often, in what appears like the worst of outcomes, has the fingerprints of God all over it. It just takes time for us to see it. If we're beginning to answer our question that we posed to begin with, who is Jesus? With pretty much a scoundrel, a guy that leaves his friends hanging out to dry, a man that when he gets an emergency call, kind of just delays intentionally. If that's the story so far that we've received, we need to know it's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the script. Yes, it was about a day's walk, 
for the messenger to arrive to Jesus. That's one day. Then Jesus delays two more days. So we're up to three. And then Jesus takes a day to arrive there. So four days, four days after the death, he finally, finally, finally arrives to breathe new life, to bring resurrection, to bring hope on what was the darkest of situations. We get a grand total of four days. We get the benefit of looking back on this story and not being emotionally connected to it. But with this benefit of hindsight, let me ask a question of you this morning. If Jesus had arrived four minutes after Lazarus' passing instead of four days, would it have been a miracle? Would it have been recognised in the same light as what it was? Not a chance. Not a chance. Us as 21st century Australians get that. We see the vast difference, how the sceptic would have explained to say, well, he wasn't really dead after all. I mean, it was only a few minutes ago he was talking with us. But four days on, you can't argue that. So even as 21st century Australians, we understand the gravity of that. What we probably fail to understand is in the Jewish mindset at the time, the soul lingered around the body for three days, thinking it could re-enter the body. But on the fourth day, even in the mind of Jews, that person was dead, dead. They were really dead and buried and dead again, like they were gone. There was no hope left. When? On the fourth day. On the fourth day, after three days had passed, Jesus is in step with God's agenda and bringing glory to God, but also in step with a Jewish mindset which really and truly recognises this for the amazing miracle that it is. Let me bring this closer to home as we talk about God's timing. If I'd arrived at Axis Church just after Mike's passing, you would all be grieving and I wouldn't be able to relate, not fully. I wouldn't have been able to appreciate the quality of the man, what he brought to the table, how special he was. I would be out of the loop. But I didn't understand. And I did get to share the pain. And I did did walk some of that grief with you. My father passed away 10 weeks after I leave the state. Why? Isn't a reason, but let me give you some, shed some light. On the day of my father's funeral, the family home, which was purchased 46 years ago, right before my birth, sold and settled. On the day of my father's funeral. Talk about God's timing. So on the night of the funeral, I get to sit there in that home, knowing I was saying farewell to not only my father, but the only home I'd known as a family home. 
And I got to share in that moment with my four siblings and with my mum and reminisce and grieve and heal. The next time I return back to my home state, I imagine that home is in somebody else's hands and that opportunity won't be there. That's God's timing. So you say, well, Jono, it's all worked out for you then. You have reasons to believe. Not really. It's more profound than that. It's not reasons to believe. It's moments of grace amidst the chaos of life. Just like Mary and Martha with the arrival of Jesus. And it's what we get today, this Easter, through every storm, every season, every hardship that we face, we get opportunity to experience moments of grace because the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in the heart of every believer today. And he comes with us, not to necessarily take us out of the valley of the shadow of death, but to take us through, to take us through the valley of the shadow of death. So through every moment of hardship this Easter, may you know the sustaining grace of our Lord. May you sense the presence of Jesus show up in the darkest of moments and meet you there and carry you through and speak his new resurrection life into you. So what needs to die this Easter in order for you to experience new life in order for, for God to go to work and make all things new. We're going to hear this song called Come to the Older. And as we, we bring that stuff, those things, those broken dreams, those broken relationships, those broken hearts, please know today that, that, that this resurrection hope that we celebrate each Easter turns those situations around. So as we sing and worship together, let's bring that all to the altar today and we'll come back and pray together in just a moment.